Thank you. Well, I wow, feel a little more emotional than I was uh, anticipating here. Uh, thank you, Dave. I uh, was going to start uh, much where Dave left me off here to say I have just been struck coming in this morning at the coordination of uh, work and events to make this last month happen where uh, the church that I'm working at part-time, East Point over in Dundonald, saw just the need of Dave, heard about his paternity, heard that uh, we had a friendship, that this could all work out, and they released me. I'm really grateful to them. The pastor there, Stephen, said, we're all, we're all part of the kingdom. Let's, let's do some kingdom work together this last month. So that has been a huge gift. And you as a community have just been a gift to me. I don't know that preachers always do a good job talking about the faith they receive from the church as they preach and as they lean into questions they themselves are asking. So thank you for all the conversations, the relationships I have felt ministered to in my own disenchantment, seeing what Redeemer Central is wrestling with here, seeing where the Spirit of God is moving, the potential for where you all can go. And as Dave said, I hope this is not the last time we are together. But because we are here for this week, let's dive in to one last interesting conversation, uh, a fun conversation to have. Um, I first want to start with just a brief recap, in case you've missed any of the last three weeks. We have been talking about disenchantment. Uh, I have the definitions. They should be ingrained in your memory now. By this point, disenchantment is when you're just disappointed with something or someone you previously admired. It's when you're no longer believing in the value of, of something or when you're just unhappy as we've been holding the tensions these last few weeks. I think there's a sense of disenchantment coming out of COVID, surely. It's just a sense of the world has not been doing well, and we can all feel it. And yet, particularly, disenchantment has been heavy in the church, has been heavy over our faith as we've had everything from scandals, church leaders continuing to fall, a sense of disconnection and disillusionment when it comes to church itself as we've all been online, we've all been trying our best, but it's just been hard. It's been challenging. And so the question I've been asking with you is how might Jesus offer us a way with specific practices that we as a community, if we were to pick these practices up, could begin to journey out of our disenchantment, could maybe begin to journey back to God. So the second week I was with you, we talked about prayer. I talked about prayer as a means of embodied attention, embodied attention to God in all of the disillusionment and distraction. Prayer is how you, with your body, pay attention to where God is and what God is doing in your life. Last week, we talked about the very uh, joyful and celebratory topic of fasting. Uh, it was fun and rich and yet another means of embodied resistance now to the culture of more that we found ourselves in. I was able to fast this past Wednesday for you. I disliked it as much as I always do. So uh, any of you who were able to join me, it was a miserable morning that led to some uh, really rich times of prayer. I hope I would love to hear stories this morning as we keep going. But today, I, I want to end. There, there's many practices we could talk about. There's many places we could go on this journey. Maybe I'll come back and we'll be able to keep talking about practices of Jesus that offer us a vision through disenchantment. But I have one last one that is incredibly important, I think, for not only this 
cultural moment, this moment we find ourselves in, but particularly for my generation, for sort of the millennials, Gen Z, anywhere on the spectrum, I know it gets kind of fuzzy. I think this message really matters to us, and so I want to lean into it with you. It's talking about the practice of generosity, the practice of generosity. So let me unpack this with you by asking an interesting question as we begin. The question is this, can money buy you happiness? Can money buy you happiness? There was a study, a fascinating study. If you haven't seen this study before, it's worth checking out. 2010 by Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton also helped him on it as he did this sweeping sociological survey across the United States, asked thousands and thousands of people. He discovered that there was a dollar amount, forgive me for being in dollars, I am an American, uh, a dollar amount on happiness. And specifically, That dollar amount, as the reports have blared since this study came out by Kahneman, is $72,000 a year. Now, translate that down. Uh, If you exchange it into pounds, maybe economy shift, maybe this is 50,000 pounds. It's for a household, so think households. Once you get through all that, though, you'll notice I threw the data up on the screen. He found that, as makes sense logically, if you just think about it for a moment, those with very little income, Uh, living in the poverty threshold, they're reporting significantly higher levels of stress. They were coming in the range of five out of 10 on a happiness scale. There were all kinds of questions he was asking. And he saw that the number for happiness, the happiness scale, was going up the more money someone made. So that too would make sense to how we think about money in the world. Surely more money can help solve your problems, particularly in the lower threshold of income. But as the study found somewhat conclusively, I mean, I've been reading some follow-up studies, people have been pushing back, trying to explore his data point. He very significantly saw there was a hard line at $72,000 a year in which anyone making more than that just was not experiencing any significant or noticeable increase in happiness. Now, if you're like me, you might be drawn to say, it would be quite nice to make $72,000 a year. Maybe that explains why I have not been as happy as I would like to be. But the interesting insight this study is pressing up against us is the question, can more money really make you happy? I want to follow this study with another study that came out a few years later, an even more fascinating study. This is the really exciting one. Uh, Never before been done a Harvard Business School investigation into over 4,000 millionaires with a very similar sort of scale investigation into their happiness. Now, what you may or may not be surprised to learn is they did yet again find if you break the $8 million uh, level of wealth, you are happier, but you may notice with the numbers up on the screen, you go from a 6.5 on the happiness scale, if you're in one to $7 million, of value to a 6.75, so a nice little 0.25 bump. Now, you go down just a little bit if you break 10 million. I don't know what it is, about 10 million. That uh, is disappointing those following up the scale. And yet what strikes me, and the reason I put this study in front of you, it's, again, fascinating, worth looking up if you have a moment. It just really makes you think, do the millionaires have something we don't? 6.5, 6.75 doesn't sound all that happy from the vantage point we would probably all be in saying, wow, I can only imagine what you're able to do with millions and millions of dollars. As they dug deeper into the data, they discovered 
that if you inherit your money, it makes you less happy. So the number is almost always lower if you've inherited the money you have. They also noticed comparison makes you less happy. So they found that the millionaire who lived below their means, who consistently, if you had $10 million and you lived like you only had $1 million, you know how that goes, uh, that you would actually find yourself happier than the 10 million heir who's living in the neighborhood of 20 millionaires. This is the problem when it comes to millions and millions. If you live around those who have more than you, you always find yourself less happy than them. Finally, they found, as we're going to look into, giving, of course, giving money away inevitably makes millionaires more happy. Now, I show you this data because, one, I just think it's interesting. It's fun to know. It's out there. Uh, we've been doing studies on happiness and money. But two, I think it rather conclusively presses us to ask, Will more money make you more happy? And there's a slight, subtle nod that says, maybe it could help, but at some point, certainly it will not. So if that's the case, if we're left with this longing for more that we talked about last week, this sense that all of us wish we just could have more money, and yet this inevitable realization that at some point, the threshold will be reached where money will not make us more happy. The question becomes, what did Jesus have to say or teach us when it came to money? So Jesus, as I am sure you have heard, actually talked about money quite a bit. These are 11 uh, of Jesus' 39 parables, as pastors love to point out, and yet as is certainly true, Jesus saw, Jesus knew that if you were going to follow Jesus, if you were going to practice this radical way of love and forgiveness in the kingdom of God, then inevitably at some point you're going to run up against money and what you're doing with money. So Jesus leans into this over and over and over again, 11 of these 39 parables. Interestingly, if you just walk through the list, how many of the parables, even ones that you wouldn't necessarily think about money, actually have to do with money. Money is this key factor playing in uh, the rich man and Lazarus, in the prodigal son, in uh, the vineyard and the tenants. There's a sense in which money is sort of looming in Jesus' mind. So I think there's one passage in particular that's going to give us three insights for, from Jesus that set up a response to the futility of money to make us happier. And this is going to come from Matthew chapter 6. So we begin in Matthew 6, verse 19. You've probably heard these verses before, but let's reflect on them together for just a minute. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. The first insight I think Jesus wants to confront us with in our disenchantment is the realization that your money will disappoint you. At some point, your money will disappoint you. There's this beautiful parable Jesus tells over in Luke chapter 12. For some reason, this is one of Jesus' teachings that haunts me almost more than any other. Jesus says, there was a certain rich man who had an abundant harvest. I'm just reading this out of the text. It won't be up on screen. Uh, this man thinks to himself after this abundant harvest, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. So then he says, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain. And 
then the man realizes, he says, uh, you have plenty of grain now laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. The 401k pension plan is finally in place. All of the money has been stored. The storehouse is big enough. This man never has to work again. And God says in the parable as Jesus is telling it, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Oh, I'm just haunted by that one. It's chilling to think that so often our money, our possessions, which are not in and of themselves bad things, become the fixation, the focus, the preoccupation of all our labor, all of our work. And Jesus says, who do you think is going to get to enjoy all of these things you're trying to build up in possession of for yourself? You fool, at some point, at some point you will hit the threshold where money will cease to satisfy you. My wife always talks about uh, this list of three that she has. If you think about your own life, she says everybody lives with three things that are currently in the back of their mind that they are thinking about purchasing. Now, it could be really big. You could be thinking house, car, boat. That would be very ambitious. You might be part of the Millionaires Club. Uh, I often find my list is much smaller. It normally involves a uh, meal out, a uh, pair of shoes, and uh, a book. You know, nothing too exciting in my world. But there's something on your list that's sitting there, and what my wife always says is that our lists hold out to us this illusion that if we could just get those next three things, if we could just purchase that next one off our list, then something might finally, finally feel a little better inside. Think about it for just a minute. What would be on your list? What would be one of those three? Now, think back to what was last on your list of three. And the question becomes, do you still think with great satisfaction and gratitude about the last pair of shoes you purchased, the last book or computer or phone you were able to get? No, of course not. We live in this perpetual cycle of disappointment with our money. And as Jesus is looking at it, he's saying, stop trying to store up here treasures for yourself that just will decay. But instead, look to something more. Seek something greater when it comes to where you invest your heart. This leads to our second insight that Jesus is going to share about money. Verse 21, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The second insight is that when it comes to your money, not only will your money disappoint you, but your money actually is going to reveal you. I find this quite humbling, and yet there's an encouragement in this. I don't want you to walk away from this message. I'm going to do my best to continue to be careful with this. Money is not an inherent evil in and of itself. Jesus is clear about this. One of the great stories in the Gospels is actually this comparison of two wealthy men. I don't know if you've ever tracked this or noticed this, but in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to find two stories back to back. The first is told in Luke 18 of a young man who approaches Jesus, and he has a very religious-sounding question. He says to Jesus, tell me what I must do to inherit eternal life. Tell me, Jesus, what is it that would make me right with God? And Jesus responds, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, follow the commandments. And this young man says to Jesus, I have done all those things. And while I hear maybe a little bit of 
pride in that. Sounds a little uh, bold for me. Apparently, this young man had enough sincerity in his tone that Jesus took him quite seriously, and he looked at him and said, "Uh, you are very close to the kingdom of heaven, but one thing you lack, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And this, of course, is a story in Luke 18, where we find that this man grows incredibly sad and walks away because we are told he was very wealthy. In this moment, money revealed what was already taking place in this man's heart. But by contrast, in the next chapter of Luke, we find another wealthy young man. In fact, this young man is a tax collector, which in the Roman world meant that he had access to all of the funds. He not only gathered great amounts of money, he probably was a Jewish person uh, set by the Roman Empire to collect taxes in Israel. And as he would gather for Rome, it was common practice. In fact, we're told he would skim some off the top. He would take extra taxes to simply put them into his own possessions. And so in this corruption, likely incredibly despised. If you were a Jewish reader of the Gospel of Luke, you would think, what is this man doing in the Gospels of Jesus? And yet we're told this wealthy young man was so desperate to get a glimpse of Jesus that he would climb up a tree and in this very undignified state would be looking, just trying to see Jesus. And Jesus, seeing him up this tree, says, what are you doing up there? Zacchaeus, come down. Let me enter into your house. And Zacchaeus, as he meets and eats with Jesus, will declare by the end, I'm giving my money away. Half of all that I have is going to go back to those who need it. And Jesus says, this man, this man knows what what is taking place in the kingdom of heaven. Salvation has come to this man. So when it comes to our money, what I'm trying to do, what I think Jesus is trying to do in this passage is he's trying to meet us to just offer us this sort of pastoral moment to remind us, of course money can be used for good. Of course money matters. Of course it's not evil to have a good job, to make money, to save money. And yet Jesus just wants us to know, your money is going to disappoint you if money is all your life is about. Your money might also be revealing you if you think about where your mind wanders, where your pounds flow in your own life. Yet here's the final, most concerning insight. It's from verse 24. Jesus is going to say, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I'm I'm going to keep the text up here for just a minute. The insight is this. Your money will seek to control you. Now this verse, you've perhaps heard it, it's a really powerful verse. There's two textual insights that tip us off to what Jesus is getting at here that I think, unfortunately, our English translations, for understandable reasons, soft pedal just a bit. If you look at that first uh, line, the first sentence, no one can serve two masters. The word for serve is actually the word for no one can be enslaved to two masters. The imagery quite clearly is that of enslavement. Now, what strikes me if you sit with this startling remark by Jesus is that Jesus suggests all of us will be enslaved to something. 
All of us are going to find ourselves committed to some value, to some vision, to some picture of what the good life, what happiness is going to be. And yet Jesus is clear as he leans into this moment. He says, you're going to find yourself enslaved somewhere. Be careful that if you become enslaved to money, if you literally find yourself in bondage to the master that is money, you will not be able to fully love God, fully love this other master, because you will be bound in service. You will be perpetually recalled to the true master that oversees your heart. The second insight, the second textual insight, comes at the very end of the verse. It's striking. You've maybe heard this in King James Version or from a Sunday school way back. The Greek actually says you cannot serve both God and mammon. God and mammon. And mammon was a Greek term that referred to possessions. So uh, mammon is just all things, all of the stuff that you own. And yet it's interesting, it's subtle, but it's interesting that Jesus gives an article to mammon, capitalizing it, and suggesting that mammon in this case actually almost has this demonic-like personality. It's almost like there's a, an energy or an attention or a, a personal being of some kind that's directing your possessions. This is where we could go a lot of different directions with this verse, but I think quite simply, the idea is that money has a force, a personality in your life. There is the character of money that is going to be there in your heart, and Jesus is asking us the question, who are you currently serving when it comes to the way you structure the rhythms of your life? So if your money will disappoint you, if your money will also reveal you, and most concerning of all, if your money will seek to control you, the question becomes, how could we possibly step out of service to mammon? Right? How do we, if we talked last week about the culture of more, how do we possibly live a life of resistance to this pressure, to this driving force that for some reason persists in our minds and our hearts that tells us if we simply could have more money, then perhaps we will be happier? Well, I think as we look at Jesus, Jesus gives us a simple but all-encompassing practice, and the practice is that of generosity, the practice of releasing and giving away. I, I could have called this talk the practice of tithing. I could have called it the practice of giving. But I think generosity forces us into the realization that when it comes to Jesus, he doesn't just offer things over. He actually offers things with abundance. So I've got three interesting insights into the practice that Jesus himself would model the first comes in Mark 1, 32 to 34. I can move past this verse quite quickly whenever I'm in the Gospel of Mark. And yet, just ponder this for a minute with me. The evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Okay, so this is moving fast. Jesus is, of course, in the middle of lots of action, and yet I'm struck if you slow down you notice that the setting of this verse begins, the evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick, the demon-possessed. In fact, the whole town has gathered 
at the door, and we have this question, like, what is Jesus going to do in response to all of this need that is presented? What is Jesus going to do to all that is, all the tiredness he probably feels, the exhaustion from the day? How will Jesus respond? Well, in this moment, in this particular moment, Jesus has enough to give out of abundance, and we find that with his time, I mean, something as simple as time, Jesus is generous. Next passage is in Matthew 10, 42. Jesus says, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will not lose their reward. I love here the insight. Even as you begin to think through your own life, a cup of cold water is simple, isn't it? I had a season where I was working in a Starbucks. It's a bit of a rite of passage in America that at some point you have to work at a Starbucks. And as I was working at the Starbucks, there was a strong homeless community that would wander in and out of the Starbucks. And it was always a sense of oh, just heaviness. And there's a struggle in the city of Chicago between the homeless who would kind of use and maneuver uh, different restaurants and bathrooms and all the rest. And yet I was struck that this one woman in particular would come in and she would always ask for a cup of water. That was all she was there to receive. And on several occasions, I found myself bringing her this cup of water. And I stumbled across this verse again. I just realized this, these are the moments of generosity. These are the moments of small faithfulness. And yet, even in those moments, those were the moments where, am I being forced to give? Am I being used or manipulated or abused? Or is this how I follow Jesus? By giving cups of cold water to those I find my path intersecting with. One last verse that has to be mentioned if we're talking about Jesus and generosity, Luke 21, 1 to 4. Jesus is going to look up and see the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And then he sees a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. I'm struck when we talk about generosity. You may right now, as with every one of the talks we've done so far, you may be feeling a little bit of stress in your body. You may be feeling that classic sense of, oh, we're in church. They're talking about money again. I wish I would have skipped this Sunday if I knew money was the conversation. And yet, I'm so moved as I look at Jesus that these are not these moments, these snapshots are not extraordinary. They're actually so powerful because of how small and ordinary they are. Jesus is not asking for you to do some extreme thing to follow him faithfully, whether it's move out across the world, uh, give all your money away, uh, drop your job and go take up work in a nonprofit. Although, of course, any of those things might be somewhere down the road on your path. Instead, as we sit with Jesus in generosity, I'm struck that it really begins here in these small, intimate moments of extending what you have and just being abundant in your life with it, whether it's your time, whether it's a small act of service, or whether you have nothing at all to give and yet you still find something to contribute. There's two reasons, uh, as I begin to wind this message down, that I would love for you to be generous. I know I 
started with a survey. I then took you to Jesus, tried to give you the words of Jesus. And yet, I just want to speak practically once more. I mentioned that I find this sermon particularly relevant for millennials and for younger uh, generation like myself who really grew up under the shadow of not just 9-11, but the recession that hit in 2008, the fact that all of us, as we are supposed to be moving into this wonderful moment of our careers opening up, have yet again had a pandemic shut us down. There's two concrete reasons why you as a church, Redeemer Central, and you sitting here thinking about your own money, your possessions, your time, I want you to be generous. First reason is this, that uh, when it comes to generosity, as a church, Redeemer cannot move into the mission of God without you being generous. There's a sociologist named Christian Smith who did a massive survey of how people actually give. The main takeaway is this. Christians mostly don't give 10% of their money to the church. And if they did, the church could expand in ways that we could not even currently imagine. And so I believe you, you are a generous church. I, I know you are a generous church. I believe you've already given quite a bit to Redeemer Central. I, this is not a personal attack on you. This is a reflection and a call that you as a church are here in this pivotal moment post-COVID where you have the opportunity in being generous to the church to expand the mission of God here in the city of Belfast. If only you would open your hands and just give back abundantly to God. I think it's fun to point in this moment that Dave did not in any way tell me what to preach in coming. I asked him that this, this could be a way that I could bless you as a church to come in from the outside with no strings attached. I, I have no connection to the money that you have or don't have. I really, I really don't know. Uh, but I'm calling you. You as a church can open up what God is doing here in the city of Belfast if you give. Second reason. Next slide. I love this title of Christian Smith's book. If this is a topic that you're struggling with, you might want to pick this one up. He calls it The Paradox of Generosity. And in it, Christian Smith notes in his yet, yet again sweeping survey that over and over and over again from a secular standpoint, every piece of data says you will be happier, you will be healthier, you will be less depressed, you will be more loving, you will have better friendships, you will be a better spouse, a better parent, a better person in your life if you can be generous. There is this wonderful question to ponder together. Is your disenchantment perhaps because not that God does not exist, not that the church itself is fatally flawed or corrupt, but is your disenchantment perhaps because in the fear of this last season you have found your hands increasingly closed when the gift that Jesus is trying to offer you, the gift of the kingdom of God, is that God says, in me being enough, I invite you to just open your hands up once more. That this posture, this posture could actually be the key to what it means to step out of disenchantment, to leave the disillusionment behind. So practically, practically, if this is true, that we as a church could, could expand what God is doing, if you as a person could open up your own heart through giving, what does practical giving look like? Well, two encouraging thoughts for you. And really practically, I just want to point out holistic generosity is what's on my heart. I am not here to 
uh, demand you to open up your pocketbooks and hand over the offering. Instead, I'm here to call you to consider how you could open up generosity as a practice of Jesus across the whole realm of your life for you this week, especially if you are feeling financial pressure. I know some of you in this church will be burdened by a place where money is incredibly tight. Could following Jesus this week look like a simple act, what I want to call an act of abundance, where at some point this week you set up a coffee with someone who you know needs encouragement and you spend the time saying, I just want to listen to you. I want to hear how you're doing and I want to offer you any encouragement I have to give. Could an act of abundance look like you just going over to spend time with someone, doing some small act of service for someone, going out of your way to offer a ride to someone. I mean, these are simple things, and yet Jesus, Jesus is not only worshiped, but you are freed when you intentionally move to open up your life in abundance to others. And all of us here have ways this week, all of us, maybe even a person who's coming to mind right now who might be the invitation for you to be abundant but if we go to the next slide, when it comes to money, here's my threefold tier that I have used myself, that I have walked up and down, that I have struggled with, that I've talked over and over to friends who struggle with. I know this, as I've said over and over for our generation, this is actually a struggle. This is really where we're stuck. And yet, consider with me, three simple steps of faith. First, if you're not giving it all to the church, just give something. It, it really could be small, it could be anything could be widow's mites, and you will find your heart open up and you will find God start to move in your life. If you are giving something, move towards 10%. 10% is a wonderful threshold. It's not a perfect threshold. It's not a magical religious number. But, but increase to giving regularly. Increase to tithing a portion of what you have to release it to God. If you are giving 10%, Move into generosity. I know many who uh, have taken a challenge that every year they want to increase 1% of what they're making as they give it back to God. That doesn't work for all of us. But it, is it possible, is it possible that even now in light of this message, as Redeemer stands on the cusp, as you stand on the cusp of this new season after COVID, that you could be invited into a new season of generosity with God? Um, in order to help this land, as I know this is not light stuff, I want to give some space to pray into this. I'm going to do a brief prayer practice. We've done this before. The band wants to slowly start making their way up. Um, a simple prayer practice. We're going to use our bodies as we have every week. You're invited to follow along. I'm going to give you some gentle instructions. The reason why we're using our bodies is we're just connecting that attention to our bodies to God, an embodied attention to God. Yeah, I think, I think this is significant enough. This is weighty enough. This could be the invitation from these last four weeks that God has for you, that I want to give you space to hear from God and to wrestle with God, to have God direct you. Where is it that you are call, being called and invited to follow Jesus and being generous? So uh, these three simple principles to sort of put before you as we move into this prayer time. I believe we cannot give what we don't have. So for you, the pressure you may be feeling to give, some exorbitant amount, some endless energy, time, whatever it is, put that pressure and shame to the side. And instead, as we go to pray, sit with, what is it that you already have that God is inviting you to open and to give? 
Yet, I also believe we can't release what we want to control. So the temptation for most of us with our money is that we're trying to get control over our happiness. We're trying to get control over our image. We're trying to get control over our identity. And this is the moment before God that you are invited to release that which you would prefer to control. Yet finally, finally, when it comes to our money, I have seen over and over again, we actually can't receive if our hands are full. So some of the logic here that God repeats over and over again is that God has blessings for you. This is not some sort of march into terror and bewilderment and despair. Instead, God, your heavenly Father, wants to give you good gifts. And for many of us, the reason why we are feeling so empty right now is that our hands have been holding on to things that if only we could open and release, God wants to put new gifts into our hands. So in that vein, let us pray. Go ahead and close your eyes. I invite you to get comfortable. Maybe put your feet on the ground. We're going to be using your hands, so go ahead and just shake your arms a little bit here to settle in. This is a simple practice. You could do this on your own. I sometimes find this helpful to do whenever I'm about to give money. If you extend both of your arms out, palms facing up in front of you, just reach your arms out a little bit to get just a little bit of tension in your arms. You're going to start feeling tired in just a few moments. That's okay. You can shake them. You can move them. But as you're holding your hands out in front of you, the question I want to invite you to pray into is, what are, what's currently in your hands right now? What do you have sitting there in your hands? It could be relationships. It could be your money, your income, your savings accounts. It could be possessions. It could just be the capacity feels like you have a lot or feels like you have only a little? What is it that you've come in this morning that's currently sitting here in your hands as you sit before God? there in your hands, I want to invite you next to clench your fists, to clench firmly, to press your fingers in. And as you do, the question is, what are you holding on to? What is clenched in your hands right now before God? Is it your money? Is it your time? Are they relationships? second of holding it firm. Feel the, the strain in your forearms as you continue to clench. 
moment of prayer before the Lord, I want to invite you to release your hands. Just stay for a moment here in the Lord. What do you need to release? What do you need to extend out to him? Whatever you need to do as you pray with this, press towards the Lord that you've been what you've been holding on to. Press towards the Lord what you've been trying to control. Offer to the Lord your worries. Offer to the Lord your needs. together, perhaps even hold them close to your body now. As you cup them, what is it that the Lord wants to give you? What might the Lord be looking to press back into your hands? Is there some calling on your life? Is there a purposefulness? Is there a gift of gratitude? there's some need you actually have been needing to be met the Lord wants to press in and minister to you even now us in our disenchantment. Thank you for coming in Christ to show us the way of faith that can navigate all of the obstacles, the frustrations, the scandals, and the disillusionment. And Lord, may we, before your presence, learn to trust you. Learn to trust you with our money. Learn to trust you with our time. Learn to trust you with our happiness. May you minister into the needs that each person has brought before you this morning. Even as we now invite you to lead us into your table where you will place your body and your blood in our hands and remind us that in Jesus Christ, you truly have given us enough. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.